Imagine living in a time where six men kill themselves every day. And if we thought that's gonna happen in a hundred years, it sounds pretty gross, but it's actually now. Uh, you know, originally fake news starts as a critique of news that's considered to be inaccurate. It's become a term that's used now to dismiss any news that you don't like. And around one in seven young Australians uh, has a mental health condition. They are our most unwell generation that we've had. People don't accept the climate science. So if I think about how we're going to save the world, art enables us to move in that direction. Welcome back to What Happens Next. This time we're looking at how we can counter misinformation campaigns and fake news. We'll hear from experts exploring what we can do differently to improve the quality of information and media. Dr. David Holmes specialises in a different type of communication, using research and evidence to identify where and how to get information to large audiences. Margaret Simons is one of the nation's most respected reporters, commentators and educators on the state of the media and politics. She was the founding chair of the PIJI and is a current board member. The Public Interest Journalism Initiative is on a mission to save democracy from the decline it faces at the hands of reducing news budgets and increasingly concentrated media ownership. Unfortunately, due to COVID, we've had to adapt and do a number of these interviews by phone. So while occasionally the audio isn't as great as always, we promise you the content is. Joining us is renowned reporter and public interest journalism advocate, Margaret Simons. I'm Margaret Simons. I'm a journalist and author, a journalism academic, and also a board member of the Public Interest Journalism Initiative. Margaret Simons, thank you for joining us. What is public interest journalism as uh, distinct from regular journalism? Well, I guess the best way of describing it is that it's journalism which is democratically important. Um, and journalism has a number of functions, obviously, including entertainment, um, but uh, you don't normally include sort of celebrity gossip and light entertainment and where to get the best latte under public interest journalism. Um, but you would include, obviously, investigative journalism, but also the sort of journalism we've seen through the coronavirus um, crisis, informing people about what the situation is, what the various responses to that situation are, how the government's performing, how to wash your hands properly, um, that's important. Um, investigative journalism, which reveals new things, but also um, things like court reporting, uh, reporting public meetings, um, reporting public debates, or when there's a crisis such as the bushfires being there on the ground so that we can know what's happening to our fellow citizens and what the implications are. So what happens to a society without public interest journalism? Well, it sounds very basic and in a sense it is but without information we don't know ourselves we aren't really a society so if I can draw an analogy before the invention of the printing press um, so we're going back into the sort of 13 and 1400s there um, democracy if you think about it wasn't really possible even the idea of the public wasn't really possible because the very word public and public interest arises from the notion that you can have people who don't necessarily know each other in a direct sense, um, but who are connected and who share common interests. And it's really only possible to develop that sense 
um, with a communications medium which can span physical distance. Um, and that was, of course, in those days, the printing press, which changed everything when you think about it. But among other things, many other things, um, helped to make democratic forms of governance possible. Do you think public interest journalism can act as something of an antidote to fake news? Yes, I think it is really the only antidote. Um, we need um, sources of information on which we can rely. And I think the era of fake news draws closer attention to what it is that good journalists do. Now, you know, I'm not going to defend everything any journal, every journalist ever did. In fact, I've been very critical of some of my colleagues and made friends by doing that. But um, we shouldn't lose sight of, of what good journalism is. Good journalism is information which, as far as is possible within the time span, has been checked. Um, verified facts, journalists out there talking to people, observing things and reporting on what they have seen. That is absolutely the antidote to fake news. What do you think are some of the positive impacts of having investigative reporting like public interest journalism um, thrive and, and reach more people through new channels like podcasts, for example? Mm, well, we've seen very real demonstrations of that as the world has changed around us. People have turned back to reliable sources of information. Uh, one of the ones I've been uh, looking at in particular is uh, the ABC's Norman, Dr. Norman Swan, who's been putting out a 10-minute-a-day podcast on, um, on the coronavirus and the latest research. And it is one of the most reliable sources of information at a time when a lot of people are panicking and when there's a lot of false information around. Now, without the work of journalists, we wouldn't know what was happening elsewhere in the nation, elsewhere in the world. We wouldn't be able to gather the information to assess whether the government's response is or is not adequate. Um, you know, information is still scanty. This is a, a developing crisis. But imagine what it would be like if you could not find any information about what was going on. The reality is that in this sort of situation, that would cost lives. Do you think the Australian public is generally pretty well informed or no? It's hard to generalise on this. In some ways, people are better informed than ever. They certainly get their information more quickly. But of course, it's coming from a mix of sources. And, um, and not all of those sources are disinterested and not all of those sources are reliable. Can you give us any examples of places where journalism is going well, where you think this is exactly what we need, this is exactly what society needs to be heading towards, new initiatives, new projects, new approaches that can give us a bit of hope for, for the way forward? Yeah, look, it's hard to do that at the moment, to be perfectly honest with you. And the reason is that across the Western world, where we have a free media, generally speaking, journalism is in crisis. Um, and that is not because it isn't still important and it's also not because there's a reduced appetite for it. In fact, the appetite for news has never been higher. Mm. It's because the business model, which has supported most journalism, um, is broken. So traditionally, I started my career at the Melbourne Age, for example, my salary was effectively paid by pages and pages of classified advertisements that used to appear in the back of the newspaper. Um all of those classifieds have now disappeared um, to online forums. Um, and more recently than that, and this is really the story of the last five years, um, most of the display advertising has also disappeared and now appears in online platforms 
um, you know, Google search, those sorts of those sorts of things. Mm. So the advertising revenue has disappeared, and that used to be eighty percent of the revenue of most newspapers, roughly speaking. So that has been devastating. Um, there are some hope, signs of hope within that. Um, you can see a few quality outlets, like the New York Times is the best-known example, which have been able to claw back a lot of that revenue through subscriptions, uh, paying, uh, getting people to pay to access the news content online. Um, the Guardian, um, both the British-based Guardian and our local um, outcrop of it in, here in Australia, um, have actually made a direct appeal to their readers to fund their journalism, and that has been astonishingly successful. Um, and again, the, the Guardian's turned around from being in deficit to uh, surplus purely on that basis. So, you know, there are signs of hope. There is no evidence at all of declining appetite for public interest journalism. In fact, as I think I said earlier, there's never been so much appetite for it. And I think that's why you're seeing models like the New York Times and the Guardian succeeding, because people are wanting reliable information more than ever before. But the problem is the business model isn't there to support it for most publications. Margaret Simons, thank you for joining us. Let's hear from Dr. David Holmes, who finds new ways to get accurate information to the right audiences. We're in an attention economy and David and his team go where the attention is. He says the best approach has three key attributes, large audiences, clear messages, repeated often. I'm David Holmes and I'm the director of the Monash Climate Change Communication Research Hub, which researches ways of building climate literacy in Australia for a broad range of audiences. David Holmes, thank you so much for joining us today. How bad is fake news right now? Well, I think you need to distinguish between fake news and disinformation. And I think, you know, fake news uh, can be a term that's used to attack traditional media, which uh, is usually uh, much more trustworthy than social media, uh, but not always. Um, There are have been, you know, recent problems with uh, coverage of bushfires uh, over summer in Australia, for example, coming from legacy media. But I think uh, relatively, you know, social media, uh, there has been a lot more problems in terms of even organised campaigns and bots and so forth, putting out uh, a great deal of uh, misinformation, including you know, that arson was the cause of the fires over summer or it was about totally about the lack of fuel reduction rather than uh, climate change, which uh, attribution studies uh, have shown really amplified the likelihood of the fires happening on the scale that they did. Our studies at the Climate Change Communication Research Hub on, on, on people's attitudes to climate change show that that in fact there are there's you know at least five Australias uh, to do with climate change. You've got your alarmed and your cons- your concerned, your uncertain, cautious, and dismissive. And all of those groups tend to be in their own filter bubble. Social media actually reproduces that division rather than uh, than helps with uh, you know going to really what are uh, the expert sources and trusted sources uh, that you know people can have um, a consensus view really on uh, on a particular you know scientific uh, scientific set of facts uh, because 
Some aspects of news, they don't turn on opinion, they actually turn on science, such as medical science that we need to understand the coronavirus, or climate science that you need to understand climate change with. How bad could things get if it's left unchecked? I think the more serious an issue is, the more uh, consumers will turn to trusted sources. Okay, so, you know, and particularly when it's a case of, you know, life and death. I mean, do, do you want to get coronavirus? Well, no, no one really wants to, to get uh, coronavirus after, you know, reading what actually happens, like factual information about number of deaths overseas and, and the way it affects the human body. So I think um, in, in, you know, there's a kind of law of um, equilibration where the, the, the more... Uh, serious an issue is the more people will turn to trusted sources and we're seeing that with the ABC over the coronavirus and we also saw that with um, with the bushfires that that when people realized there was there was misinformation being um, distributed via social media they they were looking to more and more trusted sources. You work for the Monash Climate Change Communication Research Hub Tell us about that. First of all, what is that? The Climate Change Communication Research Hub researches the best ways to communicate uh, climate change to a broad public. And in order to do that, we research a number of things. One is uh, the audience and what's called the attention economy. Uh, we research factual information. So we, we get information that's brokered from actual climate scientists uh, who of course, you know, have a, a consensus view over anthropogenic climate change or human-caused climate change. And we also look at, well, who are the most trusted sources to deliver this information? Uh, because it's not necessarily always the climate scientists themselves. What we found was that weather presenters are one of the, the most trusted sources. So we have partnered with them to present climate information. And of course, many weather presenters are, are meteorologists as well. So they, they are sort of, you know, they have this dual identity as being uh, public identities as well as, uh, as um, trained meteorologists. So, uh, so we found that that was a very effective way to communicate uh, factual information that is sort of also repeated often, uh, but, but with a whole a range of different kinds of facts that, that when you add them up, become multiple lines of evidence that show trends in very clear ways. Weather presenters by definition are kind of local. In other words, they, they present to a city market or it could even be a regional market. Uh, that The fact of them being local is itself uh, a source of trust. Um, whereas an interesting thing about climate information is that the more global um, the other facts that you give people, the less connected people are to those facts. Was it hard to get any of those weather presenters on board? Uh, no. So um, what we did was we uh, surveyed all of the weather presenters in Australia, and there are only 75 of them, and we asked them about their uh, willingness to present climate information in their weather bulletin, and we found that 91% uh, of them were comfortable with presenting uh, climate information uh, to audiences. And so then, then we also surveyed the audiences of those same weather presenters. And we found with the audiences, uh, there was uh, a 74% uh, 
of, of those audiences were interested in hearing about local climate statistics uh, over, you know, a 30 to 50 year time scale. And uh, because, you know, there was an obvious audience appetite, this was very influential in, um, in also the news directors coming on board. So, so really um, that meant we could pilot with a couple of presenters, which was J- Jane Bunn at Channel 7 in Melbourne and Paul Higgins at ABC. And they kind of pioneered this new uh, change up to how the weather is done. And after that happened, we simply were able to just point to how they they had done it in Melbourne to other presenters around Australia. And now we have uh, 14 weather presenters around Australia uh, who uh, reach one third of Australia's television audience. It's very clever. You know, I think when we think about the way we communicate about climate change, often it is that sort of scare tactics that everything's, we're all going to die any minute and everything's going to be hot and we've gone past a million, don't turn back, you can't turn back now points. Was it hard for you to feel that something more gentle, I guess, or less in your face could be effective? We had done research showing that overseas in the United States, a method known as non-persuasive communication uh, was, was very successful. What non-persuasive communication does is that it it, it really cuts across those five Australias that I was talking about before, because, you know, people are very familiar with weather presenters. They tend to be anchor people who are there on your television screen. When you come home at a certain time of the day, they're highly trusted. They, they you know, people already have, you know, they already have people's attention. Non-persuasive communication really contrasts with the kind of communication and advocacy that NGOs do, which is kind of, um, you know, like a a form of shouting really, um, whereby it's about getting attention um, and sort of waving a flag and saying, listen to what we have to say, whether it's, you know, an alarmed message or a concerned message. And, Audiences tend to pigeonhole that. Well, of course they will say that because they're an NGO and that's what that's the sort of line that they push. Um, but but in a way, what you're doing there is actually entrenching those five Australias, you know, so that the alarmed might be impressed, the concern might be impressed, the, the dismissive, you know, really gets their backs up and the, the cautious and uncertain, like you may lose those, those groups. Um, so what you need is a message that uh, that works with all five groups and not just, you know, preaching to the converted in a way. So, uh, so non-persuasive communication does that, but it only works if you just present factual information. other things beyond climate change that this a similar approach could work for other social issues or areas where we need to create a bit of change yeah i think really any area where there is misinformation and it is clear that that misinformation needs to be corrected i think you know going back to the experts um finding trusted sources to communicate what they have to say, which may not necessarily be those experts themselves, um, and um, repeating those messages often as well. So, you know, one area might 
you know, could be health. You know, with coronavirus, you know, you could see, you can see at the moment there is much misinformation around and um, some of which even comes from, from le leaders of uh, very large uh, nations, uh, which needs to be corrected. And, uh, and I think, uh, so any program that's able to, you know, broker the expertise and, you know, have that come from trusted sources is uh, generally in the public interest. Who does your research tell you is the most trusted person in Australia? Yeah, well, good question. I, I mean, I don't think there is such a thing as a trusted source who, you know, can handle all issues that audiences would be satisfied with. But certainly our research on uh, trusted sources on climate change uh, shows that climate scientists are still the most trusted source, which is thankfully because it's they're, they're the scientists after all. Uh, but interestingly, they're, they're followed by farmers, uh, then firefighters, and then weather presenters. So the reason we went with weather presenters in our programs, of course, is because weather presenters are also skilled communicators and they have access to very large audiences. But uh, going back to farmers and firefighters, you know, what's interesting about those people is that they are sort of regarded by the public as at the front line of climate change. Uh, you know, you've got farmers have to figure out how to grow our food in times of extreme weather and drought. You've got firefighters actually having to put out massive firestorms, as we saw last summer. And people feel this real empathy with them that they actually understand climate change because they have to live with it in their job. Uh, we also found in our research that the least trusted group uh, on climate change were, were politicians. And this was paradoxical because we also, at the same time, found that politicians tended to get more airtime than anyone else on climate change. So this can also be a real turnoff where it's kind of like it, it, it can sort of be associated with fake news in the sense that uh, that politicians, you know, there's this so-called debate about something that's actually based on science where uh, politicians are just seem to be saying whatever's in their interest in this debate. And so, you know, there's a kind of hollowing out of values to do with that. Like who, you know, who, who do you believe with the politicians? And, and seriously, some audiences, when you ask them, what is climate change? It's sort of like, well, isn't that what politicians talk about? And it sort of becomes divorced from the actual physics that it's something actually happening outside and it's happening right now. They, it's sort of equated as some, just some debate that happens in a parliament. You know, if you were running a campaign about climate change, you know, I recommend to people you you really, you know, need to um, enlist a, a farmer or, or a firefighter uh, or, or, a, or a climate scientist to do your messaging for you rather than, than a politician. Mm. Well, bad news for politicians, but good news for farmers. Uh, maybe we should talk to them next. Uh, Dr. David Holmes, this has been incredibly interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Great to hear those insights from Margaret Simons and David Holmes. In the next episode, we'll round up all the experts' best tips for navigating through the online mire to identify accurate information from reputable sources. Thanks to our guests today, Margaret Simons and David Holmes. That's it for this episode. More information on what we discussed today can be found in the show notes. 
I'll catch you next time on What Happens Next.